Well, I hope you guys are having a good uh, morning and a good weekend. And I am uh, happy to be here. I got to admit, I'm a little jacked up this morning. So I, I always go and get some uh, coffee. I get some coffee in the morning. Uh, coffee is chocolate milk with maybe a quarter shot of espresso in it. And I highly suspect that they didn't put a quarter shot in this morning. I'm really wired. Uh, so we're going to have a good time. It's going to be really fast this morning. Um, we're we're going to have a good time. So uh, many of you know, uh, three weeks ago, Mike and I got on a plane and headed to Nicaragua. And a lot of you have been asking how that went. So I thought I'd take a few minutes and just share with you about our time there. In general, we had a, we had a fabulous time. It was wonderful. Uh, your prayers were felt was effective. Um, we felt safe. We stayed healthy the whole time that we were there. Uh, when we go to Nicaragua, uh, we always go with kind of a, a, a general agenda. There's always this agenda issue when we go there. And by general agenda, what I mean is this. We're, we're going to go on this date, and we're going to come home on this date, and, and we're going to go prepared to work, though we don't necessarily know what the work is, and I'm going to go prepared to teach, though I don't necessarily know when I'll be teaching. Uh, we know we're going to eat, but we don't know when, and we don't know where. We really don't go with an agenda like lunch on Tuesday is this, and, and this is what we'll get, uh, when we'll get up this day, and this is what we'll do this way. We kind of go with a general agenda, because what we found is if we set a specific agenda, we'll just be frustrated the whole time that we're there. So we don't go to be served. We don't go to tell them what to do. We go to serve. And this trip, we had a wonderful time. If you've been uh, following the news at all, you know that for the last year, uh, Nicaragua has been in social and political upheaval. Uh, we've heard stories about violence, about death. We've heard stories about teenage boys by the scores who have gone missing. Um, nobody knows where they are. We know that they're being taken by the government um, to intimidate the people, intimidate families. Uh, we heard stories from families about uh, their teenage sons going to school. At five months ago, they haven't seen them since. They don't know where they are. They don't know what's going on with them. Um, we uh, landed in uh, Managua. If you've been to Nicaragua, so Managua is a city of about 2.2 million people. And when you go to Managua and you drive down the street, it's kind of what you'd expect. It's just stop and go traffic all the time. This is what we found when we were there this time. Uh, you can drive as fast as you want. There's no traffic on the road. Um, it's clear sailing. Uh, so many people have lost their jobs. So many businesses have closed. So many people are intimidated to be out in public that you just don't see a lot of people. In fact, I, I don't remember seeing a North American at all until the last day uh, that we were there. Uh, the first night that we were there, we went out with uh, Rigo and Claudia and a couple from um, Cuba that we met while we were there. And so we told them, we're like, you know, where do you guys want to go eat? Uh, as difficult as things are in Nicaragua, what we discovered is they're worse in Cuba. And uh, so we said, hey, we want to take you out to eat anywhere you want to go. We'll eat. I don't know if you can see the menu. Uh, they wanted to go to, I mean, I was so ready for Nicaraguan food, and they wanted to go to TGI Fridays. <laughs> I, I saw, right? So TGI Fridays had opened um, last April, right before all the revolts began. And um, you you may notice uh, we are the only people in the restaurant. Huge restaurant, and it wasn't uncommon for us to go to places where we typically go in years past crowded with people, and we would be the only people, period, in the entire restaurant. They say that more than half of the restaurants have closed, more than half of the hotels have closed. A lot of businesses have shut down because of what's going on there. 
Uh, this was up in Chinandega, so uh, we traveled the second day up to where we were going to be stationed most of the time. Again, uh, Chinandega is a city of about 150,000 people, kind of scrunched together. Again, lots of traffic, and this is typically what we saw. Uh, comparatively, not much traffic at all in that town. A lot of people hiding. In years past, when we would ask questions, you know, how, what do you think about the government? What do you think about socialism? What do you think about what's going on here? People would share with you. Now, uh, they don't share with you unless you're in a private place place, and even then, they whisper. Uh, it is a really sad place to be. This is uh, the church right outside of Chinandega, where we spent a lot of our time. This used to be a uh, building where they serviced buses, and uh, the church eventually got it, and they uh, meet in there. And then, I don't know if you can really picture this, but uh, again, looking back, there's kind of a courtyard there, and then it's surrounded by, I think, what used to be offices, but now we're, we're going to turn into classrooms. And so one of our jobs while we were there was uh, to do a lot of work. We basically, let's see if I can do this. So we're going to replace the, the false ceiling there with new ceiling, putting in windows, uh, putting in doors. We're going to work in the bathrooms as well. And so uh, we got there. We had a team of people who were working with us. Got a lot done. Uh, so like I said, you don't set an agenda. What are you going to eat? When are you going to eat? They put down food in front of you and you eat it. And what you usually discover is it's really good. This guy looks like he's smiling. Um, I don't know. Uh, I remember the first couple trips I went, I would just kind of look at that and like, try to eat. And now I just, it's really good. It's good stuff. But again, uh, you, you, give, you eat whatever they give you. This is uh, at the farm. And if you've been at Gateway for a while, you've, you've heard a lot about the farm, Finkabalin. We had heard stories that had been taken over. Uh, we had heard stories that nobody was there. We had heard stories that things had been trashed. What we actually found when we got there was uh, things were even better than they were when we left last year. So we were very excited about what was going on there. There are people there. Um, we did something we've never done before. Mike and I stayed at the farm overnight. Uh, to my knowledge, we're the first North Americans to stay there. And honestly, we were a, a little bit reticent. If you've ever been there and you know, like the idea of staying at the farm overnight. Uh, but we were kind of excited about it too. Uh, a family from our church gave us 10 soccer balls that we took. And so immediately they pulled out the soccer balls and they were, they were playing with them. This was the room that I stayed in, which was actually extremely cool. I mean, literally, because there was an air conditioner in it, which was awesome. I had a bed in there. Um, probably the only downside to this room was there are no curtains. Sun comes up at about 5.30, so that's when you get up as well. And then we were there that night. So this is a little video, just kind of in real time. There, we hit it at the beginning of the um, rainy season. And so that night, what we were there was just continual thunderstorms all night long, uh, fireflies flying around. Uh, we got to hear some um, animals that we didn't know. We were kind of sitting outside. I don't have the volume on, but listening. And I, at one point, I kept asking somebody, you know, what, what is that? What is that noise? And nobody knew what it was. It was really kind of cool. Um, but we got to be there one night. Uh, the time that we spent... Um, at Batania, at, at, at the church. So we knew that we were going to spend a f uh, most of our time there working. We didn't know really what we were going to be doing. And so this is kind of the way it goes. We get there on Tuesday. We'd look around. Uh, what do you want us to do? They'd say, well, we don't know. So we'd walk through. The great thing about Mike is he'll always figure out something to do. So we walked in the bathrooms that actually looked way better than this when we got there. And Mike looked around and he looked at the plumbing and he said, well, where are the vents for the, for the drainage? And they said, where are the what? 
And uh, so we're tearing into the walls the first day that we were there, kind of trying to carefully take out the tile and then take out part of the wall. And the second day, uh, we did it. It got even worse. Um, When we went home at the end of the second day, I remember asking Mike, what are we going to do the next day? He said, I have no idea. Um, The next day, so this is kind of, this is Nicaragua. The day that we got there, they said, we'd really like windows in all the classrooms. And so we said, yeah, we, we can do that. We went with some money. And so we we paid the money, they came out and measured them, and two days later, two days later, um, we were installing the windows, uh, so we did that one day, uh, kind of walked around, the next day, what are we going to do, and Mike said, you know, there's a, it was starting to rain a lot, and we realized there were some drainage issues, so that day, we went to the, to the church not knowing what we were going to do, we didn't have anything on our agenda, we ended up digging ditches, which is always really fun. Uh, the next day, what are we going to do, I don't know, let's make a green screen, uh, so... Uh, we went and we painted and we painted and we painted. Actually, we had a lot of fun painting on that day, and Mike and I decided we're starting our own business. Um, we're gonna, so I, I'm, I'm painting, and Mike's kind of cutting in, and I'm rolling. And every now and then, Mike would say, you know, Bob, so the, the, it's not light. There's no light in this room. Um, it's not nearly as bright as it looks there. And we're painting, and I, so I have really bad eyesight, and I'm kind of painting every now and then. Mike would say, oh, you know, you missed a spot there, or you missed a spot there. And we decided that we were going to start a paint company called The Blind Painters. And I came up with a motto. Our motto is going to be, it looks good to me. So uh, uh, that's a painting. These are some of the guys that uh, we worked with uh, when we were there. The hardest working, uh, talented guys we have ever worked with. It was just such an honor to be with them. Uh, so, um, so agenda and schedule. So the first time that I went to Nicaragua, I remember like being with the team. I think it was with Harvey and Jackie. And I, I asked them one day, I'm like, you know, where's, before we went, like, where's the, where's the agenda? Where's the itinerary, right? I, like, what are we doing on Tuesday at three? And what are we having on lunch on Wednesday? And where are we sleeping Thursday? And they just kind of laughed. And they said, you know, we don't, we don't do that kind of thing. We don't have that agenda. We go and, and we let them tell us what we're going to do. And so I knew that um, I would be teaching for two eight-hour days uh, for uh, national leaders. So I was, I was prepped for that. And in fact, I, I made some extra material. And they didn't say anything about preaching, but I knew it would probably come up, so I prepared a couple sermons as well. And so when we got there on Tuesday, uh, I had been told that I would be teaching all day on Saturday and Sunday at the farm, and I, you know, that was great. But I've been there before. I know how this goes. So on Tuesday, that was a plan, and we worked uh, at the church on Wednesday, on Thursday. On Friday, um, we're kind of hanging out, and Rigo says, hey, you know what I think we should do tomorrow? I think we should cut off work early and, and go to the coast, which would be really fun. And I was like, that would be great. And then I'm like, wait a minute. Um, aren't we going to be at the farm teaching tomorrow? And he says, oh yeah, no, uh, we're going to do that on Sunday and Monday. Just like we could just change it. And so in my mind, I'm like, but what, did, what about all the leaders? And all, you know, he's like, yeah, don't, don't worry about it. So I was okay because I was prepared. It didn't matter what day. And so uh, on Saturday, we worked uh, at the church and then we cut off early and we went to the coast, had a really great time. We're at the coast um, on Saturday evening, and Rigo says, oh, by the way, um, I'm going to have you preach tomorrow at a church. So I was like, yeah, they get it right. (laughs) I'm like, okay, that's great. No problem. I'm totally ready. But wait a minute. I thought I was going to be at the farm teaching all day. Oh, no, no, no. We're going to do that on on Monday and Tuesday, right? So it just kind of keeps sliding. So we got, we took this big, long drive on Sunday out in the middle of nowhere, um, went to this church. This was a church that we went to full of the most loving, liveliest worshipers you'll ever get to be a part of. Uh, It was so awesome to do that. 
And uh, then eventually on Monday and Tuesday, we made it to the farm and ended up teaching. And these are some of the people uh, who I had the honor of teaching while we were there. Uh, great, great time in Nicaragua. I appreciate so much your prayers. Um, and we had a great time. But it reminded me while we were there that if you go to Nicaragua on one of these trips and you have a very set agenda, you will be frustrated every day on the hour because the plans that you make never go the way that you think they should. Nicaragua trips go best when you just are very gentle. We're going on this date, we're coming home on this date, uh, where we stay, what we eat, where we work, that's up to the people who are there. We're not going to be North Americans who tell them what to do and how best to do things. We're gonna go and we're gonna be servants. We're gonna follow and we're gonna serve. And this idea, as I was down there, I was thinking to myself, you know, this is a lot what it's like to follow Jesus Christ. We don't come to Christ with an agenda. God, here's what I want you to do. Here's when I want you to do it. Because if we do that, what we discover is Christianity will be nothing but frustration and difficulty and disappointment. Because maybe you've noticed that God has his own agenda for your life. And your agenda for your life, uh, if you saw the sermon title, I would just say it's lame. All right. So most of us, the, the, the agendas that we come up for our lives are not what God has for us. It's his agenda. So we're in the book of Jonah. And uh, for the last couple weeks, last three weeks, uh, Gary and Scott and Matthias did a wonderful job of, of keeping the story going and teaching. But what we've noticed if you've been here is that Jonah has been on this amazing, amazing journey. Now what we know is that Jonah was a prophet of Israel. As a prophet, he had a job. His job was that God would speak to him. God would speak to him in a way that we, know, we don't hear God's voice today, but a prophet would hear from God. And then his job was to take the message God gave him and to deliver it, usually to a king or to leaders or to the people of Israel. Now here's what never happened up to the day of Jonah. God never sent a prophet to go to another nation. That's never happened before. But God goes to Jonah and says, I want you to go to another nation. In fact, I want you to go to the capital of Assyria, to Nineveh, and I want you to take a message to your enemies. Now, Assyria and Nineveh are the national enemies of Israel. They are bigger than Israel. They are stronger than Israel. Uh, we know historically they came in, caused a lot of problems in Israel, killed a lot of people, and then basically said, you know what, we'll leave you alone if, if you'll give us your, your lunch money, basically, right? Like the bully in the, in the school ground. And uh, so Israel would pay a tribute to Assyria every year, and for that money, Assyria would leave them alone. But Israel knows that uh, they're, they're on loaned time because they know at some point they're gonna run out of money to give to Assyria, and Assyria's gonna get tired of this game, and they're just gonna come in and destroy the nation. They are bitter, bitter enemies. God calls Jonah to go to their enemy. This is unprecedented. God has never called a prophet to do something like this before and to go through the town and to issue a warning. And the warning is basically, God can see what you're doing and you better knock it off or God's gonna come down here and there's gonna be some judgment. And Jonah doesn't want to go. We've talked about that week after week. He doesn't wanna go. So he runs in the opposite direction. He gets on a ship he goes down, he goes to sleep, a storm comes up, he ends up getting thrown overboard, you know, he gets swallowed by the fish, he prays while he's in that fish, the fish vomits him up, he, he's on dry land, he goes to Nineveh, he gives the public announcement, he's just one day, one day into giving the public announcement, and it's a massive response 
down to the very last person of Nineveh. And God grants this reprieve of destruction. It's really, again, unprecedented and astonishing. And really, when you get to the end of chapter three, if you've read through the book of Jonah, it would be easy to get to the end of chapter three and just think this is where the book should end. It should say Jonah went back to Israel rejoicing because God did something unprecedented through him. I mean, I know people who would give just about anything pastors, ministry leaders who would give just about anything to see what Jonah saw, to be used by God in the way that God used Jonah, to bring spiritual awakening to hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, imagine that, imagine that happening in our capital. I mean, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Imagine that, that God sends somebody to Washington, D.C., and they just take one day, and they, they walk around, and they go through the Capitol, and they say, God can see what you're doing, and shocker, he's not happy, and uh, he's going to come down here and take some names if you guys don't get your act together. And then imagine turning on CNN and finding out that all of our leaders are on their knees and they're repenting and they're praying and they're, they're turning to God and they're humbling themselves. I mean, what would you be willing to, to give up in order to see that happen in our country? I mean, think of the person in your life that you love so much who just continually stiff arms God. What would you give to be able to be used by God to draw them into a place of faith? Now, we know that this was a time of unusual grace. In fact, 750 years later, Jesus will refer to what happened in Nineveh. He's speaking to the people of his day. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is just saying, you know, Jonah, who was a reluctant prophet, who preached a very short message, walked through this place, and they repented. And Jesus looks at the people that he was with in that day and says, you have something even better here. You have the Son of God in your midst, and you're rejecting him. So it was a very, very uh, unprecedented, and unusual thing that happened in the story. What's shocking is that there's a fourth chapter to the book, because you really wouldn't expect it. And what's shocking is the response of Jonah. So as we kind of dive into this part of the book, note, first of all, the contrast between God and between Jonah with what the people of Nineveh do. In chapter 3, 10, it says this, when God saw what the Ninevites did, God relented. And that word relented means to, to, to console, to comfort. So when these evil, violent people repent, God's response is, is grace. God's response is mercy. God is really happy for them. What was Jonah's response? Slightly different. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. In your notes, I've noted that that word displeased means to be broken up. And as we'll see, Jonah is literally broken up over the repentance of these people. And he's angry. He's, he's burning hot. So this should always make us scratch our heads when we read this. I mean, imagine if you were in school and you were writing a, a, a term paper and you worked hard on that paper and you turned it in. And imagine that you get it back and you got 100%. Would you be angry at your teacher for giving you 100%? Would that make you mad if, let's say that you were a musician and uh, you were in concert, and at the end of that concert, you got a standing ovation. 
Would that tick you off? Would you be mad at the people who, who stood up and appreciated what you did? Right? If, if, if you were a, a painter and you, you painted something and, and somebody saw it and put it in, a, in an exhibit in a famous museum, would you walk through there and be angry for that happening? If you, if you shared the gospel with somebody you love and care about and they, they came to faith, would that tick you off? Of course, of course not. But, but think about this. Jonah's just preached the, to the toughest audience of his life. And every single person repented. Every single one. It's been noted that this event is probably singular and that it is the greatest response to a message ever preached anywhere in all of Scripture. This one right here. And yet Jonah is angry. Why is Jonah angry? I mean, for Jonah, basically, everything went right. I mean, he didn't do everything right, but everything else went right. God came to him and gave him a, a project. He didn't want to do it. He ran from God, but God didn't give up on Jonah. That's pretty good. God didn't give up. Uh, Jonah gets mercy, even though he sinned against God. Jonah gets a second chance even though he didn't deserve it. Jonah goes through and preaches for just one day, and this, this miracle happens. So when everything's going right for Jonah, why would Jonah be angry? Well, we find out in verse 2. It says this. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? What we find out is that Jonah has been in an ongoing argument with God all along, Right? And here's what he says. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and you are merciful. Right? I mean, don't you hate that about God? That God's so gracious and merciful? Doesn't that just tick you off, right? Hey, you're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love and, and relenting from disaster. And no, no wonder he was angry when you have this unreasonable God like this, just full of grace and full of mercy. In other words, what he was saying is this, God, I knew, I just knew that you might do something like this. I suspected it all along. These people are evil. These people are our national enemies. They only changed because they were afraid. They didn't really convert. They're not Jews. They're not like us. They're not really worshiping you. They haven't even changed yet. They're only promising to change. And you're showing them mercy for that? And what Jonah says is, see, I suspected, God, that you might do something like this. Now, what did Jonah do in his anger? To his credit, he prayed, which shows some growth, right? Because the first time that God talked to him, he, he, he ran from God. But now he's praying, but he's not rejoicing. He's not rejoicing in what God did. And, and apparently, it's possible to witness God do a miracle and not like it. You think that's ever happened to you? Do you think you've ever witnessed God do something great? I mean, God do something good and you didn't like it? Do you think that ever happens that God, does, that God maybe blesses someone and you kind of wish he didn't bless that person? Have you ever seen God bless your enemy? And you're like, see, God, that's the thing that bugs me about you is that you know, you're like that. Have you ever seen God forgive someone? Have you ever seen God answer a prayer and you just really did not like that about God? Now, of course, the context when we've talked about this is there's a lot going on here. See, God many years earlier had promised Israel that he would, that he would accomplish his purposes through 
these people. They are his, his chosen people. But the idea is that God would, would bless the world through Israel. Israel thought what it meant was God would just bless Israel. They didn't care about the world. God was like, no, I want to bless the world through you. That, that's the part they really didn't get. So here they are, the nation of Israel. They're, they're not in a good place. They had, they had bad spiritual leaders at the time. Uh, they're not in a good political place. They're, they're not very secure as a nation uh, militarily. The Ninevites are their enemies. The Ninevites are more powerful. The Ninevites are cruel, godless people. And Jonah's question is, how can God keep his promise to bless Israel and show mercy to their enemies at the same time. Because Jonah really sees it as a zero-sum game. He sees it as this God can do one or God can do the other. But if, but if God blesses Nineveh, then it's like taking blessing away from Israel. And Jonah sees this conflict between the mercy and the justice of God. He, he thinks that God can be just or God can be merciful, but he doesn't think God can be both at the same time, he, he has some bad theology going on here. And instead of, instead of trusting God at his word, God who has said that he can be both at the same time perfectly, Jonah has some theology that says, now he really can't. Of course, we know years later, we have kind of a bigger picture of the story. And we know that in Jesus, we see both the perfect justice of God and the mercy of God together playing out at the same time. We see that they work together. They're not in contrast with each other. So again, we know a little something that Jonah hadn't quite figured out yet. We know that in the cross, we, we have a big cross in our sanctuary because it represents so much for us. But it does re represent this, this theological conundrum, if you will. How can God be, uh, how can he punish sin, uh, that is be just, and how can he be merciful at the same time? Well, he does it in Jesus because Christ in going to the cross, he, the wrath of God comes upon him for the sin of mankind. Uh, we see judgment, we see uh, atonement, we see um, all of this taking place. God is not winking at sin. There's punishment for sin. There's a, there's a price that has to be paid for sin. This is, this is justice. At the same time, we have the mercy of God because all of us who place our faith in Christ and what he has done receive mercy. Uh, mercy means that we, we don't receive what we deserve, which is judgment, and we receive grace, which means we get what we don't deserve. We get salvation. We get our sins forgiven. But, but for Jonah, see, Jonah cannot, in his mind, he cannot work this out. God, he says, cannot be both things at the same time. What Jonah has really is what I want to call just a lame agenda. So he, Jonah, has, Jonah has put together an agenda for God, and God's agenda isn't really working out. So again, if you go to Nicaragua with a very specific agenda, you will just be frustrated. But the same thing is true if you try to follow Jesus with your agenda. If you come to God each morning in prayer and say, God, I'm sure you never do this, but come to God. All right, God, I got this to do today, this to do today. Here's, I need you to do this here and this in my relationship and this at work and this. If that's how you come to God, where you say, God, you know what? My will be done. You're going to be a very, very frustrated Christian. In chapter four, verse three, we read this. He says, now therefore, Lord, in a, I just picture Jonah in a very dramatic fashion, right? Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah basically says, my life no longer has meaning. My life no longer has purpose. Of course, we would ask, how could, how could somebody who was a prophet of God, who had heard the voice of God, who had witnessed God's power, come to this place? 
Jonah basically is telling God, you know what, God, I just, I had an agenda. I just had a few things I needed you to do and you won't follow my agenda. And so if you will not follow my agenda, God, then I quit. Then I'm done. I'm going to go over in the corner and take my toys and I'm going to pout and I'm going to whine and I don't want to talk to you anymore. And what this reveals is that there was something more important to Jonah than God. And if Jonah had to choose between God and that other thing, then he's going to choose that other thing. That's what he's doing here. And when you say to God, you know what, God, I love you and I'll serve you unless you do this. Or I'll serve you, but unless you don't do this. If you don't give me this. If you cause this in my life. And if you do that, God, then then I'm going to go all Jonah on you. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm out of here. Take my toys, go over to the corner, and we're done. Then what you're revealing is what your true God is and what your true love is. And it's not the Lord God. And I can guarantee you that God will force the issue. He'll force the issue in your life. Now, for Jonah, we know that it was a lot of things, and we've talked about this, but certainly among the big issues here, among the the gods that Jonah had, there was his nationality. Jonah was an Israelite. And what we discover, ironically enough, is that that's more important to him than the God of Israel, is is his nationality. And he was an Israelite. And so basically his, his agenda was this. God needed to bless Israel and God needed to curse their enemies. It was just that simple. But God could absolutely not bless both. His patriotism was more important than God. His agenda was more important than God. And that's called sin. And when the Ninevites responded to the grace of God, to the offer, Jonah should have rejoiced. Jonah should have worshipped. Jonah should have, as we'll talk about in the weeks to come, Jonah should have set up a little Bible school in the middle of Nineveh and said, oh, now you guys are thinking about God. Let me teach you about God, train you about God. Let me give you some good theology. He doesn't do any of that. He stomps out of town. He's angry at God because of God's agenda. He's angry at God because of God's mercy. In verse four, and the Lord said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Or as NIV puts it, do you have a good reason, Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry? See, Jonah is ready to give up on his very life. Think about this. But God was not willing to give up on Jonah. And I love that about God. Jonah's done. God's like, yeah, no, I'm not done, Jonah. I love you too much. You see, I think so, what we forget sometimes is God is more focused on what he wants to do in you than what he wants to do through you. There was probably... 500, 1,000 men, I'm just drawing a number out of a half, but there was probably 1,000 other people God could have used to go to Nineveh, right? There were probably many people who would have taken up that task. Why did God choose Jonah? It wasn't because Jonah was God's only hope. God could have done it 100,000 different ways. See, this wasn't just about what God wanted to do through Jonah. It was about what God wanted to do in Jonah. And sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we think that, that being a Christian is all about what we do for God when it's really about what God does in us. How God is changing us. How God is making us like Christ. This doesn't even occur <laughs> to Jonah in any way, shape, or form. 
You see, the reality is God loves you. God has grace for you, but God's not done with you. God wants to grow you. God wants to sanctify you. It's not okay with God to just let us remain like Jonah, to be self-righteous, to be prejudiced, to be conceited, to be angry, to lack compassion for our neighbor. It's not okay with God. He doesn't want to just leave us like that. So God will push us in a situation so that we can grow. In verse five, it says, Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. You see, he's just done. We'll talk more about this next week. But see, when we force our agenda on God, we are like Jonah. When we force our agenda on God, we are sinning like Jonah. When we care more about our own interests than the interests of others, we are sinning like Jonah. When we don't care about people who are different from us, we are sinning like Jonah. When we don't care about people who dress like us or vote like us, we're like Jonah. When we walk by people who are jobless or homeless and think, you know, oh, they need to get a job. Well, they need to get it together. We're being like Jonah. When we don't care about people who are on the wrong side of the border, whatever border that is, we're being exactly, we are exactly like Jonah at that point. We are making excuses for not doing what God has clearly called us to do. Love your neighbor as yourself. We are being just like Jonah. Jonah's ethnicity dictated his agenda. As one writer said, Jonah was not merely patriotic. And on a day like this, we think a lot about patriotism, don't we? And there's not anything wrong with patriotism. There's nothing wrong with loving your country. But as one writer put it, Jonah was not merely patriotic. He had a spirit of antagonism toward foreigners. And he hoped that God shared his attitude. He hated foreigners. He hated Ninevites. He felt that, that they should be barred from the grace of God. And Jonah's nationalism didn't just put him in opposition to his fellow man. It put him in opposition to God, to the agenda of God, to the will of God. We need to be careful because we are living in a day, if you watch the news, of, of, of growing worldwide nationalism, not just in our country, but all over the world. There is growing nationalism. And America first, I love America, I love being, going to Nicaragua, coming home, I practically want to kiss the tarmac when I get here, or at least drink some water out of the faucet, you know, when I get back to America. I love this country, I love this place, but folks, if America first pits us against the will of God, then we are sinning like Jonah because we are first citizens of heaven, of the kingdom of God. And we must let God set our agenda regarding other people, regardless of their skin color or what side of the border they live on or what language they speak, or what political system they're in, or what religion they're in, or what their morals are. Because none of these things are an excuse not to love them as God commands. Which takes us to a solution. A radical solution. So in chapter 2, you might remember the story, Jonah is in the fish. Uh, Scott talked a little bit about his timeout. And while he was in that, that timeout, Jonah realized that he needed grace. He realized he had sinned, and he realized that he needed grace. And, and he knew that if God gave him what he deserved, he would get judgment. 
but what God gave him was grace. Again, that's one of the things we love about God. But at the end of his prayer, he says something very, very interesting that we might miss. In chapter two, verse eight, he said this, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Now, on, on kind of a general level, we could read that statement and go, well, that's, that, that seems to be true. But I think given what happens next, we can see that this is not actually a great statement that Jonah's making. What he's trying to say is this. Gentiles have idols. Ninevites have idols. Assyrians have idols. He doesn't have an idol. Israelites don't have idols. That's what made them, he believed, more deserving of grace than the Ninevites. He thought that mercy had to be deserved, that grace had to be worked for, and he believed that he deserved it because he was Jewish, and they didn't because they were not. Really, Jonah is like a precursor to the Pharisees, right? 750 years later, in Jesus' day, Pharisees taught legalism. What they basically taught was that God's favor had to be earned. It had to be worked for. You did it through works. You had to keep the right rules. You had to do the right rituals in the right way. You had to have the right DNA, the right genetics, the right religion, the right skin color. And Jesus is always coming up against the Pharisees. Why? Because they literally disgraced the grace of God. Right? They disgraced God's grace in the world around them when they said, you have to earn it. You have to be good enough for it. And this is why Jesus continually came up against them. This is Jonah. Jonah had received God's unearned mercy and grace, but he didn't want that same grace and mercy to go to the Ninevites. He was a grace snob. He thought he deserved the grace, but they didn't. And Jonah's self-righteousness really through the story has been diminished, but it hasn't been destroyed. Right? A lot like many of us. I mean, understanding God's grace is a lifelong process. It's a progressive journey. It doesn't happen in one single experience, even being swallowed by a fish. So being swallowed by that fish takes away some of, of, of this pretentiousness, of this self-righteousness, but it's not completely gone because it's, it's a process for us of recognizing the grace of God. And haven't you found that the older you get and the longer you walk with God, the more you discover the grace of God and how much you didn't deserve it and how great it is? And this is, this is Jonah. And again, the Lord says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Now, of course, Jonah would have said, um, yes. <laughs> he would have said, I do well to be angry. I deserve to be angry. I mean, one of the issues Jonah is about to face, and he knows this, is that he's going to have to go back to Israel. And when he goes back to Israel, they're going to say, hey, Jonah, what did you do? And he's going to say, oh, I went to Nineveh. And they're going to kind of be like, you went where? To our enemies? And Jonah's going to be like, yeah, it was crazy. I, I, I didn't want to go, but I went there, and I, I preached this message, and they repented, and, you know, a couple hundred thousand people have, have, have uh, repented of their, of their sin, of their violence. And Jonah knew that in that moment, his reputation as a prophet would be trashed. That, that people in Israel would not like him anymore. His reputation would be gone because he would have blessed his enemies. And there's kind of a key here, really, that God's glorious reputation in Nineveh required the loss of Jonah's reputation in Israel. And so the solution is that Jonah must die to himself. Jonah said earlier he wanted to die, and he was right. He needed to die, just not in the way that he thought. He needed to die to himself. He needed to die to his agenda. This is uh, all very familiar 
to us. We spent a lot of time in Philippians, and Philippians talks a lot about that. In Philippians 2.5, it tells us this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is how we as Christians are to think. How do we think? Here it is. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he, he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, we broke that down for weeks and weeks when we were in Philippians. But basically what he's saying is this. We need to be like Jesus. What was Jesus like? He was willing to let go of his rights, let go of his status in heaven, come down, live humbly, to serve, to let go of his reputation. He was regarded lowly by people. He was rejected. He was crucified. Why did he do that? So other people could be blessed. So other people could be served, loved, and saved. As Jesus said, right, to the Father, your will, your will, not mine. If if I go to Nicaragua with a know-it-all North American agenda, it will result in frustration for me. If I go to God, to my sovereign God of the universe with an agenda, if I go to God and say, you know, God, here's my agenda for this relationship. Here's my agenda for this job. Here's an agenda for my finances, for my health, for my education. Hey, God, here's my agenda for my time and skills. God, here's what I want you to do for me. And if you don't do this for me, God, then I'm going to be like Jonah and go over in the corner and just pout and whine and fuss and you will live a life of continual frustration. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus put it this way, very simply, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? To call Jesus Lord means that he is sovereign and he's setting the agenda. In Matthew 16, 24, he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And denying yourself includes a lot of things, but it certainly includes letting go of your agenda. And until you surrender your will to God's will, until you surrender your agenda to his agenda, you will find Christianity to be frustrating and you'll find it to be disappointing and you'll find it to be difficult and you'll find it to be stressful because you are not calling the shots. You are not Lord. Jesus is Lord. See, that's the essential issue. Who is the Lord of your life? Who is setting the agenda for your time? Who is setting the agenda for your money and your schedule and your plans and your priorities and your relationships? Who is deciding who you love and who you don't, who you accept and who you don't, who you serve and who you bless? Is Jesus Lord or are you basically calling the shots? And what is Jesus' clear agenda for you? Well, among other things, and it's many things, but among other things, it includes placing your your faith in him. What does it mean to place your faith in him? It means that you trust him. It means that you trust the things that he said. It means that you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It means that you love your neighbor as yourself, unqualified. You know that is God's will for your life, that you love your neighbor as yourself. We know that his agenda includes taking the gospel to all people, to forgiving as you've been forgiving, to loving as, as you've been loved. And when people get right with God, you will have the same response that God has. Not like Jonah, but rejoicing. Rejoicing in God. I want to close with this. I don't have any sound for this, but this is a video. This was uh, at a church in Simi Valley last weekend, last Sunday. 
and uh, that's the pastor, and he's, uh, he's talking there to his church, and uh, it goes, this is about 10 minutes long, so I'm not going to play it all, but just, just so you can see that, and this is a 56-year-old woman who's getting baptized, and um, this is absolutely astounding, because that's my sister right there. And for 40 years, I've been praying for my sister. And last weekend, she confessed her faith in Christ before her entire church. Yeah. And that right there is a big part of God's agenda. That we would die to ourselves, that we would live for Christ, that we would take the gospel Take the love of God, not just to some, but to everyone. To everyone that comes across our path. Are you frustrated with God? Are you disappointed in God? Are you fighting with God? It may be that you need to die to yourself. Let go of your agenda and let Jesus be Lord. Let me pray for us.